challenge is to help other people, encourage other people to be brave to do the next thing. Because I talked to so many people and maybe I've just shifted so much that I've forgotten what it used to feel like. But so many people are like, oh, I, I, but I'm secure in my job. I, I know how to do this job. I say, yeah, but what is, what about the next one? What would be, what do you want to learn to do? Or what do you, where do you want to challenge yourself? So people call me all the time, friends and say, you change jobs a lot. Tell me how to do this. And I'm like, you can do it. You've got all the skills. People know you. You've got a great reputation. You're a hard worker. Just put yourself out there. And if it's not meant to be, you've had great practice in interviewing for this round. Like I tell people to interview all the time, even if they want to stay at their job. Because interviewing keeps you sharp and keeps you thinking about what you want to do and what you're trying to become. What's your internal success story? You know, the deep down beliefs you have about how big your life really can be. Is your internal story a big story? Or is it filled with fear and self-sabotage that keeps you playing small? When you make the decision to play bigger, you're also influencing everyone around you. Playing bigger requires a shift. The shift is what happens when you let go of the self-limiting beliefs that keep you from stepping into your authentic, powerful, beautiful self. It's a shift from the probabilities into the possibilities of your big, amazing lives. My favorite conversations are when I get to hear how people shift into playing bigger. This podcast is your invitation to listen to others that have made the shift and also serve as a catalyst to explore the shift needed for you to play bigger. And no, I'm sitting right here cheering you on. Hey there, I'm Tracy Spear, speaker, author, host of Shift Out Loud and head cheerleader for anyone wanting to play bigger. This week, I'm excited to introduce you to Olivia Martin. Olivia is a devoted advocate for education in the Tulsa community. She brings more than two decades of experience in teaching, school administration, development, and civic engagement to her role as the executive director for Reading Partners of Tulsa. Olivia attended Tulsa Public Schools throughout her entire childhood. She graduated with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from the University of Tulsa and is currently working to finish her PhD also at the University of Tulsa in English language and literature. I have lots of questions there with an emphasis on American women and black writers. That's so exciting. I want to know more about that. Olivia is fully committed to championing students, teachers, parents, and volunteers in the meaningful work of literacy for all children in Tulsa and the surrounding region. She envisions a dynamic, big, bold future for reading partners of Tulsa and looks forward to nurturing data-driven growth and collaborative partnerships in the service of students' literacy and a lifelong love of learning. There are so many things, Olivia, to unpack. Come on in. Welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you. I'm glad to be here, Tracy. Listen, I, I'm glad to have you for lots of reasons. One is I just adore you. And every time I see you, you always have a big smile on your face. And if somebody's standing close that knows you, they always go, do you know, Olivia? So you're beloved in our community. And so there's that. But also, I want to talk about this passion that you have that has turned into, it feels like, the exact perfect job for you. Do you see it like that? Absolutely. This is the best job I have ever had in every way. Nice. Did you did you always know that was the job you wanted or did you? Oh. Yeah. Tell me more about that. No. So all of my years, I thought I would just be a, not just, there's great work in being an English teacher, but that English teaching at some capacity would be my life's work. I have taught 
little kids. I've taught high school. I've taught college. Uh, I love teaching. It's my favorite thing. And I think teaching is what we're all doing all the time if we're doing the work that we love. So there are teachers all over the place who may not have studied to be teachers, but that's the work they're doing. And then I decided if I wanted to be more impactful in the Tulsa community, I needed to learn about development too. So I moved from education into development because you cannot do good work unless you have resources to do it. So I was in development. I went back into school administration as a charter school leader the last few years. And then when Reading Partners executive director position opened, it was the apex of all of that work, thinking, planning. I hadn't really thought about, I want to be the Reading Partners executive director. But when it opened, I was like, this is it. This is what I've been really waiting to do. It's literacy, it's students, it's Tulsa, it's fundraising. It's all the things that I care about and love that I've been working toward this role for, I think, about 20, 25 years. That's so interesting because the minute I saw that that was your the your new position, I was like, of course, she, of course, like, did they even have to interview anyone else? So it feels like even as a fan of yours sitting on the sideline, not knowing you that well, by the way, but knowing of you and about you and watching you, it felt like a perfect fit. I'm, I want to dial it back a bit, though, because you've said a lot in that, you know, you know, the podcast name is Shift Out Loud and what were the shifts that you made? That was a big shift to go from I'm going to go to the same classroom and teach and do what I do to I want to have a bigger impact in the community. So tell me where that originated. Is that a something that is, has, what are the family, Did, you know, were your parents teachers or how did that start? No, my my dad is a retired minister. So all of the love of people and mission and all of those pieces were built into my growing up years. But then I think I have to attribute the shift away from the classroom to Leadership Tulsa. I did Leadership Tulsa. I think I'm the class of 58. I, I think that's right. But I did Leadership Tulsa while I was serving as Director of Admission and Financial Aid at Hall & Hall. And just to meet people and network and share Holland Hall with Tulsa. And I say to people constantly, Leadership Tulsa program is in some ways better than getting a master's degree for changing your opportunities. Well, tell tell the audience what Leadership Tulsa is. There are people from all over the world listening in. So, And I think there are leadership, whatever your city is, chapters. So let's let's talk a little bit about what it is. So I believe Leadership Tulsa is turning 50 years old this year. And so there's a lot of celebrating going on. But Leadership Tulsa is a program that started really, I think, to connect business leaders and philanthropists and different people in the city to just know all about the sectors of the city, what's going on in different parts of town, what's going on in education and the and politics and business. And it really just was a great way to learn about the city, especially for people who were new to Tulsa. And really wanted to get involved. Now I wasn't new to Tulsa, but but, so, you learned, but did you learn things though that you like didn't even know existed? So a lifelong Tulsan, okay. Yeah. And I, that happens to every lifelong Tulsan I know. So I grew up here. I thought I knew things. There were so many pockets of Tulsa that I'd never entered, and I didn't know the culture of that space. I didn't know the celebrations, the festivals, the faith traditions in those parts of the city. I didn't know people were leading nonprofits. We, You know, we have an incredible nonprofit environment in Tulsa, but there were nonprofits I didn't know about. And there were just so many ways that through Leadership Tulsa, that nine months, 
of being with our cohort, being out and about in the city, being under downtown in the tunnels, meeting business leaders, meeting nonprofit leaders, learning about the needs of our city and the pockets of innovation in our city that really did just say to me, there's more I can do. I've got to do more. I am that person too, that has always been here. And I've not done Leadership Tulsa yet because of the nine month commitment thing in my travel schedule. And yet I have been on the periphery enough and worked with a lot of our nonprofits that I have, I'm so blown away by really how philanthropic our community is and all of the people behind the scenes like you and so many others that are really, you know, doing good work and really changing our community. It's, you know, it's, it's as somebody that's always been here and people oftentimes will say, really, why do you live there? And I'm like, that sounds like somebody that's never been here. Like once you come, I think you get it pretty quickly. So I love that you had that experience. So, so take me from there. So that's a shift then. So you do leadership Tulsa and you say, wow, what? There's so much more to do. So after that, I had the opportunity to leave Holland Hall and work in development at YWCA Tulsa. And YWCA does so many things in Tulsa that I was engaged in, cared about refugees and people becoming citizens and all those kinds of things. So that got me inspired to do more. And then I had the opportunity to do development at YWCA Tulsa, and they were doing work around racism and sexism and supporting refugees and and helping people to become citizens and learn English. And so all of those things have always been really important to me. And we had literacy night there. So there's literacy built in, people English. And then I had the opportunity to move over and do development at Tulsa Dream Center in North Tulsa. And there are dream centers in other places, but I would say none as amazing as Tulsa. Tim Newton, my good friend, is leading the charge there now. And we really did get to work in North Tulsa to support students, after school programming, summer programming, coding, all, all different kinds of things for students there. Then I got to follow my passion to the arts and went to Theater Tulsa. Theater Tulsa turned 100 years old this year, and we've been celebrating that. So it's kind of a weird moment in Tulsa where things are turning 50. They're turning 100. Our United Way is going to be 100 next year. So there's the, it gives us some historic vision of what was going on in Tulsa. And then after I raised some money for Theater Tulsa and had the opportunity to serve on the board at Collegiate Hall Charter School, the founder decided to go on and do other things. And I took that role and was the hardest job I've ever had in my life. Leaving a public, well, public school in Oklahoma. <laughs> it's hard. It's so hard. They're incredible people at every level of public ed in Oklahoma. At the state, I had so many great friends help and support me from the capital side and local charter leaders and TPS and union leaders. It's just, it's so hard to do education, especially that was during the pandemic and right after the pandemic. And even though everyone in the classroom was doing everything in their power to support and educate children, it was just the most traumatic time to be in education, I think. But I will always say that trauma and that experience and that challenge prepared me to do anything afterwards because it required so many moving pieces and so much new learning that I was very humbled by that job. Mm. Because there were so many things I didn't know. I assumed I would go be an executive director. I'd raise some money. I knew schools. No, there is so much more to running a public school. So I am grateful for everyone who's doing it 
and now I get to partner with people in the classroom doing doing leadership at their schools all the time with what I'm doing now. But it, nothing will ever be as hard, I don't think, as leading a public school in the state. When you're growing up, I'm going to go back to the theater Tulsa. You said yeah. that was one of your passions. Did you grow up thinking you were going to be on Broadway or you were going to be an actor? Absolutely no. not. No. You um, you, I can see you on stage. No, no. So this is what I think about myself. I grew When I was younger, I was like a child. I was much more, not a loner, but I, I wasn't nearly as outgoing as I am now. I was social and I had great friends and I had a wonderful family and all those things, but I would prefer to read a book in my room, really focused on my academics, was not an athlete or we're a singing family and I took piano, but not like I was not, I didn't think of myself at all as a performer that no, no, no. But then as I've aged and especially once I got into admission work, it's performance. That's right. Development is performance. Like you, you have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. You have to have your whole arsenal of things you want to talk about ready to go. And so I, I actually think admission turned on some part of my personality or just forced it to, to develop so that I am, a, I think I am a much more performative person. But my love of theater and Theater Tulsa is connected to my child who saw a Theater Tulsa show when she was seven a kid show and said, I have to do that. What? And, and we've been doing it nonstop ever since. So that's how we fell in love with theater. Tulsa was my child's trajectory through their program. So, Oh my gosh. Are they wanting to be on stage? She is on stage all the time. She's just turned 16. I think she's too practical to actually want to be on Broadway because that's not a very consistent life. And it's a lot of rejection. Of course, I think she wants to be a psychiatrist. But the love of the stage is like, well, I think even have being a minister's child, like there's, there's, yeah. there's, they're just platforms that we get better and better at sharing from and feeling confident in that space. But I think Maddie was born that way. Okay. She didn't have to develop it. She just hit the stage and was like, I'm ready to go. That's so would you, would you classify yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? Now I'm, a, I think I'm pathologically extroverted. Do you think that the, and this is a bias, I was about to say it, I'm going to say this differently. Do you think that the households you grew up in, that was maybe a little bit more about reading and, and, you know, being, being less extrovert? I don't know how to say that differently. Do you think that you were socialized as an introvert or do you think that you were an introvert all the way and now you're socialized as an extrovert? I think, I think the latter. I, okay. I don't think, I think I could have been anything I wanted to in my growing up years. Like no one was telling me what to be or how to do okay. it. And my brother was an athlete. So we just kind of fell into our roles sure. and we were comfortable in them. And we could have done any, if I had said, I want to go be on stage, somebody would have found a way to get me on stage. It just was more, that was just my read and write. And I love that. What did mom do? Remind me what mom did. She was trained as a hairdresser. Okay. Then she became the church secretary when we were kids. So my parents worked together in the same office for almost 40 years, and I have no idea how they did it. Wow. That's that's impressive and admirable and hard. It's hard. <laughs> they, they were made to do it. So I, I can't imagine it, but they did it really well. I love that. I love knowing that. Okay. So, so let's for a moment also, I have one question when somebody is in, you know, when you said English 
and an English teacher, and all of a sudden you kind of started talking about development director roles, that's a completely different set of muscles mm-hmm. that you have to use to raise money and the fundraising piece. And I I believe, because I've heard this from other clients or other people, you're not a client, but well, maybe not yet. Yeah, yeah. yet. Soon. But what I hear oftentimes is that the asking for money is so difficult to do. And I'm always trying to reframe that and say, you know, what the, the benefit of it, but it's no, 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 I'm, I'm doing it and I want to do it because it's a function of my role, but it's a, it's a harder thing to ask people for money. What's your experience with that? So I think the easiest thing to tell people who are afraid to ask for money is I'm not, a- you're not asking it for yourself. Yeah. That would be odd. <laughs> that would be awkward maybe. But right. you're, if you believe in the mission of the organization in which you're working, you can ask for money all day. That's true. That money is serving the goal of the organization. And for us at Reading Partners, I think easier than anywhere I've ever been involved in development. And I think admission is a kind of development too. You're at a private institution, you're still going to get money from those people. It'll just be a little, it'll be a different approach. But if you believe in what you're doing and who doesn't believe in children learning to read, right? Yes. That's not controversial. I don't have to argue with you to get you there. Everyone knows how important that is. And we need funding to do it. And we need to partner with our public schools and our education leaders to get the work done. So asking for money is really not that hard to do when you believe and when you know it's not it's not me asking. It's we're asking for kids. In the show notes, we need to put the link to go donate money to reading partners. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll do we'll do that at the end. We'll definitely want to talk about it. And I would imagine that it and you just said it, it's it's pretty much an automatic yes for anyone that you ask because of the value. But let me ask you this. You said something as I read it in the bio, nurturing data-driven growth. Tell me more about that. What's been what are the statistics right now that either surprised you or your most trying to turn around. Give give me a you know just a sense of what that data driven growth looks like for you. So right now, and it's been true for a little bit since the pandemic in Oklahoma, only about thirty percent of third graders are proficient in reading. What? So that's a crisis. And we how do we compare to other states? Not great, but all other states are struggling post pandemic. But we really do have a challenge, and our okay. and. Our, I I am certainly not the person to make an argument about math, but our math is even lower. So we are at a a crossroads in Oklahoma, I think. This is the moment where we can really tilt toward the good in that and really make an impact, but it's going to take all of us to do it. What's happened in education in the last 15 years is you and I were probably taught very similarly when we were in elementary school. We learned to sound out words and how to decode and we had context clues and all those kinds of things. I think that's pretty familiar for anybody over a certain age, but over the last 10 or 15 years, we Mm -hmm. haven't leaned into that approach to, to literacy for, for young kids. There've been a lot of different fads is a negative word, but just fads in literacy that have hurt us. And so when we got to the pandemic, it was, it, everything stopped because we didn't have those tools ready to go. So now both reading partners and most childhood educators in literacy are moving back to phonics, like decoding words where we would have said, I'm sounding out a word. Now we need to teach kids how to decode a word 
We need to help understand their context clues. That's the science of learning to read. And as a nation, we just stepped away from that for more than a decade, really. And reading partners in partnership with all the public schools who are moving back toward this literacy driven by data and science and what we know works. We're all doing this together at the same time. So I think we can make some great strides, but that's, that's why we're where we are. We kind of lost sight of what really works scientifically for kids to learn to read. And we had the pandemic all on top of that. And so we're just going to work hard to get out. So I think it's because we aren't doing the Saturday morning cartoon conjunction function. What's your function? What I mean, that I learned so much on Saturday morning and it was hooky and it was and the hooked on phonics and the flashcards and all those things. So are you saying that that's what we went away from? Or I assume it's more sophisticated than my the jingles that are still in my head. No, but just so many of the things that would have been typical for generations of people learning to read as kids. We just, we moved away from that. And so even I'm thinking about all the PBS, the OETA shows that I watched as a kid too, all the ways that we learned about literacy with letter, like even on Sesame Street, there's the letter of the day and there were, there are ways to work that into words. And even just reading poetry with kids and being able to rhyme and pick out rhymes, that kind of got lost. And so that's part of the science of literacy now, just to have the sounds of words available to you. I'm learning so much because I was a literature major, not a, a education in literacy person. But just thinking about how I learned to read and how words work and all the things that I've helped students learn to write about and all those things, it's interesting to come back and see it from the front end again and what really works for students because I have a two I have a two T, I have a, a reading partner. And just watching her grapple with some of those things at the beginning stages is fascinating to see how the brain works and how it starts to develop capacity for literacy. Yeah. Interesting. I want to talk about that. I want to ask you a question, and then I'll come back to this. And it is, what was the book that when you read it as a kid, you look back and go, that book was it. That changed everything for me. Was there one? Or was it just that you read so many that it just became kind of how you moved about the world? I'm always a little embarrassed when people ask me this because I was not a child who like read all of Laura Ingalls Wilder or like I just read everything I get my hands on and loved. I was just curious. So I would read about and I was obsessed with the solar system. Oh, really? So I read every single book in the school library on the planets. Like I've exhausted all the shelves. I think I must have thought I would be an astronaut then, but there's a lot of science in that. So interesting. I, I, so I loved reading for information and I loved reading fiction too. So I was, I, there wasn't one book. It was just, I just wanted to soak it all up. I got you. What and about read, now? Now, oh, Toni Morrison is my her beloved. She's my beloved. And I was obsessed with William Faulkner in grad school and they okay. really do speak to each other. When I write my dissertation, I will write about the two of them and how they kind of speak to each other across time. And so do you, do you know Jennifer Airy from Tulsa University? I do now. Good. Because you, we met the other day. That's, good. You stay connected to her. She has two amazing books out there. One of them, they're behind me and, but, and I would say I would give it to you, but I want you to support her and buy her book. But I, I, so I heard this. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Yes, I do. Okay. Have you listened to Julia Louis-Dreyfus's podcast yet? No, but I love her. So it's definitely on my list. Like okay, I know I've got it saved. Now, listen, Melissa, shout out to Melissa. She told me about it, but she, 
It is called Wiser Than Me. And so she interviews people that are wiser than her. And the one that was released this week, and I'm just, I mean, I could fangirl over her because at the end, she calls her mother. She's like, you know, she'll call her and go, mommy, I just interviewed Jane Fonda. And this is what she said. So it's, it's so real. You feel like you're just literally sitting there talking to her, but she interviewed Fran Lebowitz this week. Love her. Yeah. The And the question was, I don't even remember the question. The answer was Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison was Fran Lebowitz's best friend. And she talks about how they spoke to each other every day for 40 years. And well, no wonder I love them both. They're alive. Yes. Listen, she, she said something that was interesting. I don't want to say too much here because I want people to go to the podcast. But one of the things she said is that she misses most about Toni Morrison is that she would have known how to have a conversation about how we were feeling about the pandemic. She would, I'm sorry, not feeling about what we should be thinking about the pandemic. She said, everybody she talked to said, I feel this or whatever, but she said, but Toni Morrison would have been able to give us some structure to how, what do we think about what we're going through? React to that. What do you think? You think that's true? No, that's, that's, one of the things I appreciate most about her work, and this I think is what ties fiction into social justice and making the world better. Toni Morrison could take a character or a situation that if you and I saw it in the newspaper, we might be prone to say, oh my gosh, how could they do that? What a terrible person. You would never say that. But Toni could <laughs> take take that situation or take that person and create deep empathy for that character and what that what that character went through. So Beloved, are you familiar with Beloved? I am. So that, I, I used to teach Beloved to students and it's such a hard text. It's difficult and it's, yes. it's painful. But Toni Morrison built that from an actual newspaper article about a mother who killed her children to keep them from returning to slavery. And if we only saw that headline, all of our predispositions about motherhood and all the things that we would impose upon that person, we'd say, oh my gosh, mothers shouldn't kill their children. Well, yes, of course. But I understand why Setha killed her kids. And I might do the same thing. And until Toni Morrison has that to share with me, I might have only seen it through judgment, but because she's a, she was a genius at how to think about things and how to see people from a different angle. She she has informed a lot of what I think about what I do. Interesting. And all this work that we do is social justice work to make the world a better place for every person. And we can't really lean into that if we aren't willing to be in that person's shoes. Mm. It's so easy to judge. So easy to say, I would never, I can't imagine. And Toni Morrison... In any novel she ever wrote, even in her nonfiction work, I can see someone else's experience and yeah, not judge anymore and love that person and have empathy for that person. So she's absolutely right about Toni Morrison. No, I love that you're that you're saying that and that I had that experience of her through Fran's eyes as well. And you said that, you know, it would be easy not to. I think it's lazy to not go a little deeper when you experience something like you know, we do a lot of training on, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. And, you know, the, to me, the most important thing about Maslow's hierarchy is the idea that 
our behavior is determined by our unmet needs. And if you can get connected to that, what you're seeing, the behavior you're seeing is because there's a core need that's not being met. And how can I be an ally, an advocate to get, you know, help in, in that? What is the core need that's not being met? Because I know that will change the behavior. So, you know, you do that, you move about the world in that way. I try very hard to do that. I heard a Brown one time, and I shout out to her all the time. I'm going to have her on here soon, but she calls it the thing beneath the thing. So there's the thing that I'm seeing, but the thing beneath the thing is what's driving that. And that, you know, Toni Morrison and lots of writers, but no one like Toni Morrison, like can at least give you some texture to a character where you will be at the end of the read or what you'll be like, okay, now I get it. But that's a real art. So are you a really great writer as well? Do you have you know, desires to write novels? What do you, are you, are you, what do you think? I am a much better analyst and okay. critic than I will ever be a creative writer. I took one creative writing course in grad school with a bunch of people I'm still friends with and we were terrible. <laughs> it's hard. Writing is hard. I just, I love, I love reading and I love writing about writing and writing about fiction and writing about theme. And, nice. But like to sit down and, figure out how that's going to work beautifully and how, what I need to do at the end and how do I get there and how do I surprise people? I don't yeah. think I'll have that skill. Well, I'm always surprised, you know, I do listen to a lot of writers and that, you know, are talking about their process and they always say, I don't, I, I have no idea what's going to happen to this character. And to me, that was the thing I thought, no, of course, you know, you're like, and, but I mean, all of them go, no, I mean, it just, it kind of develops as you go. And I think most people, this is my experience in conversations I've been in. Want to say, this is the story. This is the arc. This is how, to, you know, all of the things and have it buttoned up. And then you have nothing creatively to offer to that process. If you just kind of go, well, I'm going to start with this and let it unfold. I, I, I admire writers so much for the reasons you and I are talking about, for sure. And the discipline to just show up at the blank page every day. That's every, the, every day, every day. That's, that is the thing. Okay. So I want to come back to, you said that you are, you have a reading partner and describe for the audience really what that is. And I want to infuse a shout out. My wife is, she, you know, is a reading partner and my, she, Rosemary has so many interests. She loves, she just wants to help everybody. It's, it is, you know, I, I love that about her and the reading partner it has been the steady thing in our, since I have known she, that's the thing that she doesn't miss. That's the thing that she signs up for. She, I think she took, maybe took a year off or something, but I think this is the, that one hour and, you know, I'm giving it away here is way more meaningful for her, I think, than anyone. But let's talk about that. What is a reading partner? How does it benefit all of the people that are involved? So unpack that for us. So it's really stunning how much can be accomplished on all levels it, with that reading partnership, basically 45 minutes a week with your student. Now, students in the reading par partner's curriculum, they will meet 45 minutes twice a week in order to get their full benefit of the program. But a lot of our students have two different tutors. So they have a 45 minutes with, they might be with Rosemary, and then they might be with, with my dad the other session because they tutor at the same school. And that mentorship that consistent adult or two adults who see you every week, in and out, doesn't matter the weather, 
pouring into you, committed to just you as a student, either in kindergarten, first, second, or third grade for us in Tulsa. That's so meaningful to kids. And it so inspires them to work because learning to read when you are six months to two and a half years behind, that's hard work. Sure. That's not always going to be fun. But if you have your person who cares for you and is there for you every week, it makes all the difference. But we'll use Rosemary as an example. If she comes in and meets with her student on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, they would have about 10 minutes where the student will pick out a book that he or she wants to read. And then Rosemary reads that book to the student and they talk about things. Rosemary and I have actually talked about this, asking questions like, do you know that word? Have you, do you have a pet at your house too? Just engaging the child with like what reading really is all about and how it helps us think about other things. So you have 10 minutes of that just to bond over a book, talk about a book. And then you have a section that is very scripted how you're going to teach the student about maybe we're going to study CH words. What does CH sound like? Where does it show up? Where do we see it? Well, let's write some words and learn some words that begin with CH. And we have our little whiteboard and the tutor, Rosemary would write some words or write some sounds. The student would, we'd sound out some words, we'd read some words. We would really focus on a specific skill or knowledge about a letter or a blend of letters. That's that's the middle section. And what's beautiful about reading partners is I don't have to have been a teacher before. I do not have had to be great with kids before because it's all laid out for me. I have training before I begin and all kinds of support in the center when I'm there from an AmeriCorps member who's in the site. So if I have a question, I can ask, but it's actually scripted. So I know exactly what to read and exactly when to pause and engage the child and ask questions. It's perfect. It's beautiful. And then the, the final part is the student reading to the tutor. And so it'll be a book that is specifically written for the skill we learned that day or the letters we learned that day okay. and exactly where they are in their progress through the curriculum. So we assess students all three times throughout the year to know exactly where they need to fit. And then if they're accelerated, we move them along, but they're, they're going to read that book to Rosemary. That's exactly what they need just to challenge them a little bit to implement that skill set that they just developed. And then we do things for fluency where we say, I'm going to turn this hourglass over and you're going to read as many pages as you can. And so we're doing all kinds of things. Sometimes we play games that are targeting certain skill sets, but it's very structured. It's very based in science. And what's beautiful about it is that when you've worked with a child for some time, you're really seeing that growth and you can celebrate it and encourage it. And like you and I, sometimes our student has a bad day or is tired or hungry and we get good at encouraging them to say, okay, let's just do three more. And then we can celebrate those, those wins. And then when they get to the end of the year, my student this year who I've only worked with since January, not because of me, she also has another tutor and she's a rock star. She's grown so much just in a few weeks. And so I think more, you can volunteer at a lot of places and do wonderful work, but that 45 minutes a week, really, you can see what impact you're having. Oh my gosh. I want to put a like exclamation point that like this, these are, I know people that go to work at a bank and on their lunch hour, they go down and they read, do a reading partnership. So this is a volunteer position and and it, it makes a huge difference. And I can only speak 
from the difference that it's making in Rosemary. Like we have pictures of them on our refrigerator. We have conversations about how they're doing. There's, you know, that, that is a relationship. It's, and it's been fun for me to, to witness that and watch that. And you said something before we turned the camera on here and the, you did a function this weekend and you have been going to, you know, you've been in the position since the first of the year, but you've been trying to grow the number of volunteers that your organization has. So tell the audience a little bit about what you did and what were the, the what was the outcome? Okay, so for Tulsans, it will not be news, but for anyone else, this is the 50th year of Mayfest in Tulsa, which is an incredible arts festival every spring for three days. It was started by the Junior League of Tulsa. And the University of Tulsa took it over this year. And so it was it was fantastic. But we had an opportunity to do two things this weekend. We did our third annual Booked Up for Summer because Reading Partners Tulsa is able to give away, because of generous donors, 700 backpacks with brand new books for students to take into their summer. And we do literacy activities they can do with their family. FC Tulsa, the soccer team, gives them free tickets to the soccer game. So it really just sets them up for success in the summer to keep reading. And we got to celebrate volunteers. We had a hot toast, our local kids rock band there. We had a, we just had so much fun. So we had that on the Guthrie Green for two hours on Saturday. But the rest of the weekend, we were with the community partners tables, all the, all the people who do good work in Tulsa, recruiting volunteers. And I think we recruited more than 60 new volunteers this weekend. Wow. So if you sign up, we're calling you in July but there are going to be many more opportunities. Our community engagement staff tables all over the place at houses of worship, at corporations, at all over the place to recruit volunteers. But we really want to pour in this year to being at festivals, engaging thousands of Tulsans so they know what Reading Partners is and what we do and how easy it is to make a difference for literacy for young people. So if they if Tulsans do not know who we are yet, you they will. will. Yeah. Well, listen, I was in New York the other day, not too long ago. And, you know, I was there in meetings and I perused my Facebook page and there you are in New York with, I think, Savannah Guthrie and Hoda. And did you meet Michelle Obama? I can't remember who, who like, who all did I you meet? Met, I met Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams. In person. I love her. I know. Who else did you meet? Love. Yes. Okay. Les Questlife's heart. He has ri- he's a writer because he does everything. And he has donated books to all of our reading centers. So kids are going to now have Questlife books. But that was our national okay. meeting and our national fundraising gala. And it was incredible. I thought you were going to say maybe you'd seen my friend Primo on something while you were in New York because he's the executive director of Reading Partners New York. And he is fantastic and wonderful. And we are loving competitors. So okay. he's always trying to up Tulsa and we're always trying to up New York and he's a great partner in having good ideas. But no, all the all the 12 regions were there, all of our board chairs, the national board was there. And it was a beautiful, wonderful gala that raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for reading partners. And yes, I met Stacey Abrams in Listen, her. I was it would have held a sign for her. I'm sad she's kind of politically I you know not where I hope I'm sure she hoped she would be too. So she's amazing. But I love that though. Fine. She is still doing the work all the time. She, she told she, she she told a beautiful story from the platform about it was it was a beautiful end of a story. She received a writing award when she was a child, and she was supposed to go to the local library to pick up the award. 
And when she, her dad dropped her off and circled the block because there wasn't a place to park. And she went into the library and went where she was supposed to go and said, I'm Stacey Abrams. I'm here to pick up my writing award. And the person who was there wouldn't give it to her. Oh, because she couldn't prove she was Stacey Abrams. Oh, you're kidding. And, and so eventually she got what she deserved, but it was a moment for her about how much we all need to be investing in every child and not making any assumptions about students' capacity to win awards in writing based on how they look or where they where they come from. So she seeing her be who she is and what she's doing. And she was writing and reading from a very, very early age and honing her rhetoric skills too. She's whether she ever holds public office or not, she has made an incredible impact and she will continue to make an incredible impact. Agreed. And really it was it was I was a very fangirl. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, listen, t- tell me what 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 is the how, how can people reach out to you? What can people do to find out more, even if they're not in Tulsa? So you said 12 different regions. I assume most states, most is that fair to say most cities, large no, cities? No, it's very much right now. Of course, we want to grow, but very much the coasts have have a lot of reading partners in California and Seattle and New York and D.C. and Baltimore. But Tulsa is kind of the anchor in the middle of the country. There's a great reading partners in Dallas-Fort Worth. We have a program in Denver. We have a program in the Twin Cities, South Carolina. But we we in Dallas are kind of the middle of the country. So you can always visit readingpartners.org to learn more about the entire organization or to volunteer. But each one of us has a regional website connected there too. So they can learn more about what we're doing in Tulsa if they're a Tulsa Tulsa person or if they're closer to one of our other sites, they can volunteer there too. Nice. Thank you for that. And and as I'm thinking about you in this, this position that you're in and you have taken a few different jobs to kind of get to where you are right now. Has, has there been anything that like when you're thinking about, you know, whether it's changing jobs or then the role you're in now, what are you working on now personally? What's, what's the, you know, is there a challenge for you at this, at this level? My challenge is to help other people, encourage other people to be brave, to do the next thing. Because I talked to so many people And maybe I've just shifted so much that I've forgotten what it used to feel like. But so many people are like, oh, I, I, but I'm secure in my job. I, I know how to do this job. I say, yeah, but what is, what about the next one? What would be, what do you want to learn to do? Or what do you, where do you want to challenge yourself? So people call me all the time, friends and say, you change jobs a lot. Tell me how to do this. And I'm like, you can do it. You've got all the skills. People know you. You've got a great reputation. You're a hard worker. Just put yourself out there. And if it's not meant to be, you've had great practice in interviewing for this rent. Like I tell people to interview all the time, even if they want to stay at their job, because interviewing keeps you sharp and keeps you thinking about what you want to do and what you're trying to become. Like that's, that's fascinating. I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I, I didn't do that. I stayed in a company for 29 years because I thought, well, I don't think I can succeed outside of this company. I literally did not believe that my skill set would be valued out of the ecosystem that I was in. And I now, I stand what on stages. Now? Well, I'm saying I stand on stages all over the world now saying, 
don't don't do that. <laughs> do yeah. I'll just start saying do what Olivia would do. Do not do what Tracy did. That's what I'm going to start saying. I think it's scary though. It is, but I I that is the big shift. Like I have no fear about that. But I think I've had enough roles, and I know. But when you, you know, when you go through all kinds of things in your life, you're like, well, I lived through that one and I lived through this one. And yeah. you keep, you just keep trying new things and figuring out. And here, here we are. I would say you are exactly where you, you were meant to be changing the world literally and building people up and empowering people. That's why I admire you so much. Thank and you. you couldn't, you would not be where you are if you had not taken a lot of different risks after that job. And so you just have to know that it'll be okay. You'll learn something in the meantime. And if you don't get that job, well, it just wasn't for you yet. And you learned something about yourself and your interview skills that you wouldn't have known otherwise. I think, and let's add to that, it isn't the side effect, even when you don't get the job. Yes, you, you're you learning more about interviewing, but you do kind of start to see your value in a different light. Like you're not pigeonholed. You're not, there's not a bias there. I think there's a lot of people that I work with that would say, well, you know, I, every promotion I got, it was because somebody else thought I would be good in that role. I didn't, I never took the time to say, what do I want? And I would say this, that I, I don't know what the percentage would be, but most women that I do executive coaching with are in that camp where, what do you want? Pam McKissick says it best when I did a podcast with her and she's like, and women go, I don't, I don't know. I want my you know spouse to be happy. I want my kids to be successful. I want, no, no, no. What do you want? And, you know, as she, you know, talks about that, very few people can come up with the answer. What do I really want? What really brings me joy? What is, what is the thing that is my legacy or that my contribution? And so I always love it when I get to talk to somebody, Olivia, like you, that's like, listen, I know I'm making a difference. I know what I want to do. And I know in this role, I can play an even bigger part. So I love that about you. I think our community is better because you're in it for sure. So thank you for all of that. Thank you. You're very welcome. What else do you want to talk about before we leave here? How can people find you? How can people support you? How can people volunteer for Reading Partners? So because Tracy has given me the platform to share about Reading Partners, in Tulsa alone, we could serve thousands of more students than we're serving right now because the the need is great. And we can't do it without volunteers. That is the system that all of Reading Partners is built upon. And it's the the thing that makes that beautiful relationship with Rosemary and her, her students and is on your refrigerator right now. It's so simple to volunteer. You can go to the website, readingpartners.org backslash volunteer and sign up. You can call me on my cell phone if you want to. All of that information is on the website and just, and just commit to learn more. We will, we are, you're, you're not committing to a, a, a lifetime anything. You're committing to learning more about reading partners, having some training, doing a background check because we'll be in schools with kids, which is really important. Reading Partners is very invested in racial equity, diversity, inclusion work. And so we we emphasize that in our training and the students that we are serving and we want representation for them. We want them to see themselves in text. We want them to see themselves in their tutors. So the more diversity of experience we can recruit to our volunteer pool, the better that is for kids. And really there's 25 minutes a week. It's a, I will, I'm happy to guilt anyone <laughs> to it and just say, 
45 minutes a week, we can all, almost everyone can do that. And even, even in Rosemary's case, you all travel a lot. There's even with her travel schedule, she's able to make up sessions. People are able to cover for her. And so it's not as if there's not flexibility in that commitment, but we need everyone. The whole country needs literacy volunteers to help recover from the pandemic and get kids on the right track. Because we know that if students are fluent readers in third grade, they are set up for much greater success all the way through. Nice. Academically graduated from high school, admission to college, persistence, jobs. If you are a struggling reader in third grade, your life will be different. Mm. And because until third grade, you were learning to read and starting in fourth grade, you're reading to learn. So if that spot right there is not solid, you're going to be struggling in everything from then on. So it's so important for us to build a capacity for literacy before third grade so that students can then go on and be all that they're meant to be. What a not, I, listen, that reframe, I needed to hear that. That's interesting and fascinating and makes perfect sense. Wow. Interesting. Well, and listen, we friend, thank you for your time. Thank you for jumping on here. Thank you for all you're doing. I appreciate you and Rosemary was just thrilled that we were going to do a podcast together and wanted me to tell you hello. So, well, it has been a privilege for me. And I've said just in, in, since I started this job just a few months ago, I will have gotten to be with Rich Fisher on Studio Tulsa, our NPR affiliate, Dream Come True, and Tracy Spears podcast. So, (laughs) I've lived my best life. The two of you. Thank you. That's so kind. And check out Julia Louis Dreyfus's Be on Hers. Absolutely. Let's do that. I adore her, so I can't wait to, to listen to that podcast. It won't be disappointed. All right, friend, we'll do it again soon. Thank you, Tracy. If you're still here, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review, and then tell all your friends. I want to know what inspired you, what your big takeaways were, and I'm curious, what will you go do because of what you heard today. How will you shift out loud? Let's do it again soon.